My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. If you could grab your Bibles, either paper or app, and open them up to Matthew 21, I would love for you to follow along with the words we're going to sit with this morning. Who do you put your hope in? Who do you look to to rescue you? And I'm, I'm not asking you to give me the Sunday school answer, but think in your mind who you actually look to to rescue you. Whose promises of making things as they once were or making them how they should be sound enticing to you? Who has a vision of what could be that is compelling to you and it captures your imagination and emotions? Often, if we're honest, it's someone who looks impressive, who looks powerful or able or who seems like they can handle it. Or maybe it's the one who can communicate our fears and promise to deal with them. In our context, the most obvious examples are often politicians. Someone who desires to have control in some capacity of some aspect of the government. And often it is the politician that wants to sit in that role, sit in the rescue role. Who wants to take this role and then they want to, and this happens every time, they want to announce a candidacy and they want to do it intentionally so they can put themselves in a place that you can put your hope in them, that they can describe your fears and they can take care of what you want taken care of. And what happens when someone runs for office? They have a detailed and choreographed plan. I don't know if you know this. They have a rollout, there is a press release. There is an event, there's a rally, there is an announcement, and that event is deliberate. The colors are picked in a specific way, the day is picked in a specific way, the speech is written to mention specific things in specific ways, the location is significant, and the clothes are picked, and the audience is important, and the person who introduces the candidate is important. All these things are intentional when you launch a political campaign because a politician wants to project strength and ability and a sense that they will win they hope to sweep up your enthusiasm with their charisma and their support and the size of the crowd and their polished appearance and the number of donors and they want to project that they are a political victor so you should vote for them they want you to place your hope in them and this morning in Matthew 21, Jesus prepares himself for a launch, for a rally. He prepares himself for the stage, for his entrance, for his rollout. And with all the same deliberateness, he sets up his kickoff event. But we will see that Jesus saves as a humble king, not as a political victor. Jesus saves as a humble king, not as a political victor. And my hope this morning is that we see Jesus as he is in such a way and be captured by him in such a way that alternative saviors and alternative political figures are unimpressive. And we trust Jesus as savior. Let's pick up the story in chapter 21 of Matthew. I'm gonna start in verse one. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, 
saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus is preparing to enter as a king. And this is a little bit of a shift from the story that Matthew has been telling up until this point. Because over and over, Jesus has told us what the kingdom is like, how entrance to the kingdom is gained, what to expect from the kingdom, what is greatness in the kingdom. And we, the late readers of Matthew, know that Jesus is the king. We know. We know the punchline. We know the end of the story. We know the spoilers. But throughout the story, Jesus has been a little bit quiet about that. He shushes the disciples. Don't tell them. Don't tell them what you know. He, he shushes them over here and he says, don't tell them over there. And we have been told for a long time now what the kingdom is like, and now we will see what the king is like. We will see what he is like when he presents himself as king. And now Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. This is the royal city. We've talked about this before. And just remember, he has been on a journey with Jerusalem as the destination. This is the end point. He's finally at the end of the journey. All the way from Galilee, that's about 100 miles north. And remember that he has been walking with a group of people and there have been numerous stories that have happened along the way. Remember, the Pharisees came and quizzed him about some things. And then the rich young ruler came and said, what should I do? And then he was making his way along the road and he pulled his disciples aside and he said, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to be mocked. And I'm going to be flogged. And then he made his way to Jericho, which is just down the mountain from Jerusalem, and on the way out, the two blind men, and this was, yes, this was last week, the two blind men called him the son of David, and he gives them their sight. And now he has made his way up from the slope from Jericho all the way to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, and now he's going to set up the entrance. And if you're on the Mount of Olives, you can look right at the city of Jerusalem. In fact, I have a picture for you. This is... This is an old painting, 150 years old or so, so this is not exactly how Jesus would have seen it. This is far more recent, um, but you can see it's close. This is sitting on the Mount of Olives, and Jerusalem is in the distance there, and then I actually took a picture from this spot, so I have a picture there. This is modern, several years ago, but you can see it's not that far away. You can see the wall, and this would be about like sitting at Camassia, the little park over here by Westland High School. And if I were sitting at Camassi and I was looking over into Oregon City and I thought about pizza and I thought I want to go to Mi Familia, this would be about how far I'm looking to go into the, to in Jerusalem. So I just want to point that out. It's not that far. And for us, looking from Westland to Oregon City, we would have the Willamette River there and that's the Kidron Valley between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. So thanks for putting that up there. We can take that off. But I want you to realize this is not that far away. It's about a thousand feet as the crow flies. Very close and he's sitting there on the mountain looking at the city. And what does he do? He plans an entrance. A flare of the dramatic. He's going to plan a scene, a launch. And he didn't need to prepare anything. 
This is what is fascinating. He's been walking for 100 miles with this crew of people, and now he's right there, a thousand feet away. He's just got to walk across the bridge. He's just got to walk through the valley. You know what he doesn't need right now? An Uber. He's really close. He doesn't need an animal. He doesn't need a ride. He doesn't need to help. He doesn't need help to get across. He just needs to finish the walk. He's already walked this far. He could have just finished it up and walked the rest of the way, but Jesus is intentional and confident about his entrance. This is a deliberate and purposeful thousand-foot journey. So while he is at Bethphage around the Mount of Olives, he pauses, and he's going to execute a plan. He tells two disciples, go into the village right over there, and you're going to find a donkey and a colt. Untie them, bring them back to me, and if someone says something, tell them the Lord needs them. Now, what you need to know is Jesus is right by where some of his closest friends are. Good friends live nearby. Lazarus, you may have heard of him. Mary, Martha, they live right around this area. And he's been to this village before and he's probably been staying here for an extended period of time. So this is less, this is not a miraculous happening. And I think this is more of a planned project that Jesus has put together. And now he's executing the plan. He's already arranged the donkey and the colt and now he's saying, go get them. We're ready to go. He's not stealing a donkey with the wave of his hand. Tell them this, and this magic thing will happen. The disciples are going into a known village to get a known donkey and a known colt that Jesus has prearranged. And when the two disciples come up and are inevitably questioned by the owners of the donkey, because no one wants anyone to steal their donkey, the prearranged phrase is already there. Just say, the Lord needs them. That is the password. So the owner knows, ah, this is for Jesus' work. We have talked about this before, and I knew this was coming. Here you go. And why? Why does Jesus grab a donkey and a colt? Why does he not just walk in? And if he needs to make an entrance, why is it not more bold? Why not a war horse? If I'm going to come like a king, right, why not a war horse? We could have armor on the horse. Why not a shining white stallion? And why not, why not an army behind him? And why not in kingly regalia with a crown and with a robe and all the things that would point out to everyone else, ah, that's a king? These are the questions you should be asking. If he's going to set himself up as a king, the person who is proclaiming a kingdom is now going to show up as a king. Why is it not like the typical trappings of a king? Why is it not what we would expect? Because the king and the kingdom are often revealed in unexpected ways. We've been talking for months about how the kingdom is upside down or perhaps right side up and we've been upside down this whole time. And the king comes in an unexpected way as well. And Jesus, Jesus knows the language of this book. This whole first bit, everything before Matthew in your Bible that we call the Old Testament, that he would have just called the scriptures because there was no New Testament, just the Old Testament, He would have called this the scriptures because the front part wasn't written yet and he knew all of it. And he knows all the words and has, and he specifically knows the language of Zechariah, a prophet that spoke to the people of God. And Matthew, when he quotes, say to the daughter of Zion, he is using the language of Zechariah. And the aim, the aim of Jesus is not to meet our expectations of what a victorious king looks like. He is not out to impress us with his political 
presentation. He is not here to line up with the ambitions and aims of our politicians. His goal is not to tap into your angst or your fear in order to mobilize you to support him. His aim is to take the promises of Scripture, these containers of truth, and to fill them up so that they overflow. You see, this whole book is full of promises and anticipations of a coming rescuer. And over and over and over, this book makes a reference which is a spot for a promise to be answered, an anticipation to be met, an idea to be filled. And Jesus, over and over and over, takes those promises, those containers, and he fills them up so they overflow. And one of the themes of Matthew is fulfillment. The person and work of Jesus is to be the full filling of the Old Testament container. And if you recall at the beginning of Matthew, when we first started this, it's, it's a while ago, so you might not remember, but if you recall at the beginning of the story of Matthew, there were a bunch of quotations. Jesus was born, and he quotes, and Jesus was born, and he quotes, and something else happens, and he quotes, and this, and this, and this, and he's constantly pointing back to the Old Testament. And those quotations were in order to set the precedent that this whole book of Matthew, this whole story that Matthew is telling is written with reference to what came before. And eventually, in the story Matthew is telling, the quotations slow down because he's just going to assume it from here on out. But now, this is an important moment. So for emphasis, Matthew throws the quote in again. And you see, Jesus is doing something intentional. He knows what Zechariah says. He knows what this old prophet says. And so he's going to get a donkey and a colt. And he's going to set himself up to look like the king Zechariah talked about that sits on the colt. And why? Because he is the king that sat on the colt. And when Matthew helps us by saying, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, he's not saying, I, I found this wee little nugget of goodness in Zechariah that if you, you would have missed, but ah, look, this little piece is Jesus. No, that's not what's happening. Instead, he's giving the audience, the original readers of Matthew, originally a Jewish audience who knew their Bibles, knew the scriptures, he's giving them a handhold from Zechariah. He's quoting Zechariah so they now know that Jesus is filling up whole sections of scripture from Zechariah. They get the quote and they remember the whole context. This is kind of like when you hear a quote of a movie and you don't just think about the quote, you think about the whole story, right? The whole story floods into your minds. We can try this out. Luke, I am your father. Right? Now you're thinking about lightsabers and Chewbacca and robots running around and Darth Vader. All these things come into your mind because you heard that little quote. Or maybe I say, the one ring to rule them all, and you start thinking about hobbits and dragons. Or you're a wizard, Harry, and now you're thinking about Hogwarts. I don't know. But you're thinking about a whole story, because I just put a whole story into your brain by giving you that little quote. And what is the story inside the brains of the original readers of Matthew when they read this story and see that little quote? Well... What did Zechariah say about this coming king? What does that section where that quote comes from 
say about the king. This is from Zechariah chapter 9 and what Zechariah says about the king. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land." For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and the new wine the young women. What a king. What a picture. What an intense and welcome story. Even I was, as I was reading it, I was thinking of stories like the Iliad or the Odyssey. And they would have had these type of grand narratives in their head when they read that little quote. And the original readers of this book would have read that small quote and asked the question, Oh, are we talking about that king? Are we talking about how great is his goodness, king? Are we talking about the Lord your God will save them, king? Is that who we're talking about? And Jesus, Jesus is setting up the ride with a colt to place himself firmly in the role as the coming king who will rescue. This is a king who will rule. And this king comes humbly, but his rescue and salvation is full and intense. And the rejoicing will come from Zion. That's what it says. Zion is the hill on which sits Jerusalem, where Jesus has pointed his gaze. It's all coming together. The reveal of the king is at the right location. The launch is at the right location. And Jesus plans his entry on the Mount of Olives. Why does that matter? And friends, the more, the more you know your Bible, the more you read your Bible, the more the layers of fulfillment, especially here in Matthew, just begin to stack on top of each other. And I don't have time to, to point all of them out, and frankly, it was almost overwhelming as I discovered others from this passage, how many of them there were, but this one I think is worth our time. We just heard in the story last week, the blind men called Jesus the son of David. David, the ancient king, the king who God promised would have a descendant on his throne forever. The king who sat in Jerusalem, the city that used to be called the city of David. And Jesus takes that title and is that descendant and he puts his launch from a particular place because Jesus is setting himself up to look like the son of David. 
as though he is putting on the costume of a particular part of David's life. And if you were to choose a period of David to dress up as, what would you choose? If you had to pick a Halloween costume, which would it be? And you're thinking, oh yeah, David and Goliath, David. I'm going to do that. Or David victorious over the Philistines. Or David the conquering king. Or David the poet and the singer. But that's not what Jesus does. He is setting himself up as humbled David. Humiliated David. And he is at a particular place in a particular garb at one time where David sat at the Mount of Olives riding out with a donkey. Not in triumph, but in humility. Because when this book records the story of David, if you were to go to 2 Samuel, it records the story of David on the Mount of Olives with a donkey. It is because he has to leave Jerusalem while his son, Absalom, attempts a coup to take his throne. David leaves and walks up the Mount of Olives with his back to the city, not as triumphant king or powerful king or conquering king, but humbled king, weeping king, on a beast of burden on a hill away from the city. And what's astounding, if you were to look in your Old Testament, the two times the Mount of Olives are mentioned in the Old Testament is in Zechariah and this story about David in 2 Samuel. And Jesus is sitting in both of them. And now, the son of David, where David had to leave because a son was trying to take over his throne, now a son of David sits on the Mount of Olives in the humility of David returning with his gaze toward Jerusalem instead of away from Jerusalem. And now he's sitting there returning as a king on a donkey, not a war horse, because as one writer said, his kingdom is one of peace rather than coercion. And this is what Jesus is knowingly, intentionally setting up for his launch. Everything pointing to the king of salvation as revealed by Zechariah. And the king of humility in the accessories and the location of David. And so his team gets to work. Let's get the launch ready. And what does it say? In verse 6, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The disciples did as Jesus directed them. And they brought a donkey and a colt, and they're ready for the launch. And I just want to point out for anyone that maybe reads the other stories of Mark, Luke, or John, and anyone who's reading ahead and noticing the different differences of the stories, the other stories just mention the colt, the animal Jesus was riding. But Matthew mentions the donkey as well, the colt's mother. And this is probably because he wants to tie even more into the quote from Zechariah. It mentions a donkey, it mentions a colt. We're just going to bring out this other detail because he wants more connection. And the other authors are not telling the story the same way that Matthew is. Jesus rides the colt in all of them, that's obvious, but the extra detail of its mother probably along for the ride just to calm this colt down because it probably never had a rider before is included to tie in more fully to the Old Testament quote. So the disciples bring the animals and they put their cloaks on the donkey and the colt 
because Jesus doesn't have a saddle. He doesn't have an amazing setup. He doesn't have a chariot. Everything is humble here. And he sits on their cloaks. And then the crowds, those who have walked with him from Galilee, perhaps those, some of them who knew his friend Lazarus who live around the area or saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, the crowds begin to participate in the launch of this king. The crowds are on the outside of the city serving as a procession to the entrance, that thousand-foot rally. And they begin to put their cloaks on the ground for the colt to walk on. This is an act of homage. This is a gift. This is of service. This is of worship. Others start cutting down branches off the trees and putting them on the road because a red carpet's not available because a a ticker tape parade cannot be had, because there's no confetti cannons, we can't drop balloons from the ceiling, so we're gonna put cloaks on the ground and branches on the ground. And this humble offering is fitting for the revealing of the humble king. And the crowd begins to grow, it says crowds, many crowds, it gets bigger. There are some in front and there are some behind. This is becoming a scene and they're shouting proclaiming the entry. The peculiar thousand-foot procession is becoming quite the party, and the party's getting loud. And what is their cry? They say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The The imagination of the crowds is ignited, and they are yelling about the Son of David. And I can't help but wonder about the two blind men from last week. The two blind men that shouted, even while being told to be quiet, hush up. The two who screamed, have mercy on us, son of David. And what did Jesus do? He healed them. And what was their response? They followed Jesus. They're probably in this crowd. And I wonder if they started the shouting. Hosanna to the son of David. They already have his name on their lips. They're ready to go. But the crowd starts the cry, and the crowd, the crowd doesn't recognize all the Zechariah pieces. John, a different gospel writer, says they didn't realize this until after Jesus was glorified, and then they started putting the pieces together. Oh, oh, that and that and that. Right now, they don't have it, but their imaginations were nonetheless ignited with visions of the Messiah, visions of the rescuer, the coming one who would rescue, the son of David who would save. So they take up a song that has Hosanna, or translated, save us. That is why they take up the cry. That is why they throw their cloaks down and try to make a red carpet. They know a political rescuer when they see one. They knew the outlines of the son of David. And they knew what the son of David could do. That is why they sing. That is why a song comes to mind. Their song comes from Psalm 118, which says, It's a portion of it. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, or Hosanna. We pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They have words to sing because they have the Psalms. And they see something before them. How do we respond? And this song comes to mind. They have it close at hand. And this is what is so lovely about the Psalms and the reason we walk through them. We walk through a set every summer. I don't know that we're to 118 yet, but we probably will be next summer. 
but we do this so we can give ourselves words for response. And they have this song ready to go. Oh, this looks familiar. Let's sing Psalm 118, Save Us, Son of David. And they are singing Hosanna, and we think of this as a worship song word. But, this, but it is a word translated, save us. This is not spiritualized language. And know this, they are shouting political phrases. They are asking for salvation in the here and now. And realize, they are entering into a city ruled not by the ancient line of kings from David, but by the Romans, the imperial conquerors. And they want out from under that rule. And they see a son of David and they say, save us, rescue us. This is an appeal to a throne, to a historical throne. This is an appeal to a lineage, a hereditary monarchy, to a throne that awaits the return of a son, that awaits the return of a king. And there's a tension at play here, right? You have Jesus intentionally entering into the royal city as a humble king who is setting himself up to be crucified, mocked and flogged. He has already told his disciples that this, was hap- this would happen, and they don't get it. He is setting himself up as a humble king who will bring salvation, but through his death. And you have the crowd seeing the trappings of rescue, but their sight is too narrow. It is on the here and now only rescue from the current political difficulty. That's where their vision is aligned. Make us independent. Make us great once again. They see and hope for something small. They see a glimpse, but they, it's not big in their minds. But Jesus is riding into Jerusalem prepared to bring a salvation that they would never expect. He is not there to give a mere political victory or recovery. His is not a small political salvation. But friends, we need to be aware of this, that our cravings are often, the cravings we want are often when society, cultural, government, the way things are, are not as we want them to be. We usually want small salvations, not big salvations. And his salvation is bigger and fuller and universal kingdom-making salvation. They wanted a local political refresh The king riding on the donkey was ready to give his life for a worldwide kingdom. Salvation comes from the humble king, not the political victor. And all of this is happening into the entrance of the city. And the city, remember, it's it's only a thousand feet as the crow flies. The city has a view of this thing. They can see it. It's not obscured by trees. You can't do this at the entrance of the fortified city unnoticed. This boisterous party on their thousand-foot journey is going to be obvious, noticeable, observable, disruptive, and the city takes notice. And how do they respond? In verse 10, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth 
of Galilee. Who is this guy, right? Who is this guy with this procession coming into the city? This is like driving to work one day and coming up on an unexpected political rally that took over the whole street. What is happening? What is this about? Except, this is not just on your commute, the political rally is at the gate of the fortified city and the people are shouting about the son of David. And everyone in the city knows that David used to be the king in this city. And his sons are no longer sitting on the throne. Who is this? Is the right question. And the whole city was stirred up. It's shaking. There's an intensity in the city now. This is where we get the word for seismic. Jesus' entrance has caused a disturbance. And what is wild about this is that Jesus' presence has done this in this city before. When Jesus was born, Matthew tells us at the beginning of the story in Matthew 2, at the beginning of the story, when Jesus was born, it says the city was in a similar situation. In Matthew 2, verse 3, it says, when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. When the king was born, the city was troubled. And when the king arrives with a procession, the city is stirred up. Jesus' presence shakes the royal city. And now the city asks, who is this? And the crowd says, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And there's a lot to this answer. There is a touch of connection to the divine, right? He is a prophet. He has the words of God. That's, that's true. There is a threat of the, the political because this procession is happening in the phrase about the son of David. And then someone is coming from the north 100 miles away down into Jerusalem in the south. There is reason for multiple types of people to be stirred up by this answer. The Romans wouldn't like it. The religious leaders don't like it. The current rulers don't like it. And it is true, the crowds give a true answer, but it is incomplete. Sure, Jesus was a prophet, but he's so much more than a prophet. And that is a question you must ask yourself. Do you have an incomplete answer to who Jesus is? Is he just a good teacher? Is he a profound religious leader? Is he a prophet? Yes, yes, and yes, but not nearly only that. Who do you say that Jesus is? You can say things that are true, but almost unhelpful in their incompleteness. This is like Yo-Yo Ma comes over, and someone asks, who is this? And you say, oh, he plays music. Yeah, that's true. Or maybe Tom Brady or LeBron James or Michael Jordan, for whatever, that, that controversy, that's fine. And one of those guys shows up, and someone asks, who is this? And you say, oh, they enjoy sports. Well, sure. Or da Vinci, da Vinci comes over, and you say, who is this? Oh, he's a tinkerer. He works on stuff. Or Steve Jobs shows up, and you say, oh, he's a nerd. Like, there's way more going on with those people than that. Jesus comes up, and they say, he's a prophet. Sure, that's true. But this crowd is only catching a sliver. 
They can only see a glimpse. He is so much more than a prophet. He is a king, and a king that comes not as you expect, not with power and prestige, but with lowliness. He comes humble, not strident, on a donkey, not a war horse, with a crowd of pilgrims, not at the head of an army. He comes in humility, not dominating and seizing power politically or otherwise. And friends, we need to be careful because we want a political savior. We are the crowd that wants the rescue of whatever political state we are disgruntled by. We are enamored by the political savior who poses as strong and able and slick and helpful, but they are not the way towards salvation. Even this crowd wanted Jesus to do something less than what he planned to do. But thank God that Jesus does not meet our expectations because our expectations are too small. Praise Jesus that he comes filling up all the needs and the promises and the proclamations of this entire book, not just the portions that fit our current needs, not just the small desires for our local dreams. He exceeds our expectations because we don't rightly know what to expect. And we see the political saviors coming in to rescue, and their rescue is small and short-lived. And yet we pin our hopes to them because our expectations are so small. And Jesus comes in as a humble king, and his salvation is universe-wide and history-long. And even in the humility, even in his humble state, he stirs the royal city anyway. This humble king shook the city before his glory was even revealed. He comes in an unexpected way and is able to save. He can answer the request of Hosanna, save us far more than they anticipated, far more than we anticipate. And it is right for us to ask him to save us. It is right for you to ask him to save you. Friends, don't follow the crowd in their smallness of their understanding of Jesus. Use their song, but know that the song could be answered in far bigger ways than they hoped. Jesus is the humble king who can save you. He can save you from your guilt and save you from your shame and your brokenness and all the things that came to mind when we were confessing just a little while ago. And he can save your very souls and he will not leave you adrift. His is a kingdom coming in glory, in flesh and blood and goodness and truth. And the humble king reigns because he gave his life to make it happen and is able to save you into a kingdom where peace is given and the war horse is no longer needed. Where we will no longer have to endure the continuous cycles of polished political promises because we have a king who will rule forever and never fail, and we won't need a change because all will be as it should be. Place your hope on the humble king. Attach your trust to him. He comes saving and able. Let's pray. Lord, you are a good king. Lord, help us because our minds and imaginations are too often trained to be excited by the next political offering and the small victories they provide. 
Give us an imagination that is ignited by your story for it is far more grand, far more beautiful, far more eternal, helpful, beneficial for us. Holy Spirit, give us a love for the humble king that cannot be swayed by lesser offerings, by imitations. And use these songs to train our tongues with a proper response for our king. Amen.